0: Alright. Good morning, Reach Church. Alright, so uh, you're going to want to Reach kids, are gonna head out with Miss Natuno and Miss wow. <laughs> <laughs> Katie. Miss Katie Natuno. I like I like the Miss Natuno. It's sophisticated. Um alright. Uh well, good morning. Um so we are in our second of many, series, or many uh, sermons in a series on Romans. Talking about how Romans frees us and unshackles us and how the grace of God is given uh, through the gospel, the good news. So, last week we talked about how the righteousness of God was revealed. That we desperately need righteousness. And it was revealed in Christ that we could have his righteousness by faith. And we talked about how that was a basic summary of the gospel. But the whole of Romans is about the gospel. And so we didn't exhaust it last week. And that's where Romans, it starts asking all of these questions. Uh, The intricacies of the gospel, how the gospel works. We only touched on one aspect of it. How we get righteousness last week. And so we're going to keep going and talk about all these different questions. But this week's questions are... Uh, they have to do with, with unrighteousness. So we made that assumption last week that everyone is unrighteous. And we have to recognize that that's a, that's a huge assumption. And that's an assumption that uh, most non-believers, they, they're not assuming that, that everyone is unrighteous. And most Christians, actually, who claim to be Christians, don't claim that either. And so if we're going to defend the unrighteousness of every person, we need to do so from Scripture. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to talk about how everyone becomes unrighteous. Why they're unrighteous. We're going to hear some arguments against why, why they're not and how Paul refutes those things. And then we're going to talk about how the gospel actually deals with our unrighteousness. How God addresses it. So, we're going to be in Romans 1. Uh, you probably could figure that it was going to be Romans. Uh, Romans 1. Romans 1 verses 18 through 23. Romans 1, verses 18 through 23. And as we go through this passage, I want us to see three things. I want us to see that, first of all, there is no excuse for unrighteousness because everyone knows God. There's no excuse for unrighteousness because everyone knows God. That the wrath of God is upon us all because... Everyone knows God, but everyone rejects God. Everyone actually suppresses that knowledge and ignores God. And then finally, we're going to talk about how God's wrath actually delivers us from our unrighteousness. In kind of an ironic way. So let's talk about, uh, let's read Romans 1, verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men... but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Pray with me. Father, as we look at the depth of humanity's unrighteousness, we ask that you might give us um, great humility that this is unrighteousness that is in our own hearts and our own souls and that we wrestle with each day. Father, would you protect us from our own self-righteousness, our own pride and Father, would we rest upon the cross alone to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, would you use your word that you might be our all in all, that you might be our everything that we might worship and adore you better. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last week, we talked about the revelation of the righteousness of God. That Christ came, he revealed that righteousness, and then it is applied to us by faith. But now we're talking about a second revelation. This revelation is not quite as as exciting. The revelation of God's wrath. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. All right, so we thought that we desperately need righteousness given to us. But that's only half the gospel. The other half of the gospel has to do with this problem of unrighteousness. And in this passage, we see that God's wrath is revealed against that unrighteousness. That every ounce of sin, of rebellion, of ungodliness is destined to be destroyed by the wrath of God. That no one is is escaping, no one escapes, no one gets gets a free pass that is universal. All unrighteousness, all ungodliness. And the question though is, uh, the objector might say, well, How can everyone be unrighteous? How could everyone be ungodly? After all, there are people who have never even heard the name Jesus. There are people who have never heard one of God's laws. There are people who have been born and died, never having heard of this God that we worship. And the question is, how could God reveal his wrath to those people? And pour out judgment upon people who who don't even know. That's the question. And honestly, we want we want an answer to answer that question too. That in part, we want to defend the justice of God. Is God just? Is He right to reveal His wrath? Is He holding back from certain people and condemning them unjustly? And so, to those of you who say that, no, this isn't fair, Paul actually, he, he refutes that. And he refutes that by saying that, actually, everyone knows God. And not just kind of this general amorphous God. Everyone knows the true God of the Bible. And so, no one is going to be ignorant in the last day. No one can say to God, well, it, it's on you, You should have told me. He's saying amazingly, Paul is saying that everyone knows. And how could he say that everyone knows God? Verse 19. How could everyone know God? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So if you want to guarantee that someone knows something, make God do it. If God's going to show it to them, they're gonna they're gonna see it. It's going to be revealed. And God takes it upon himself to show every single person, unbeliever and believer, who he is and his nature. And how does he do that? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. All right, so we have a contrast here. There are these invisible attributes of God an invisible, totally other, holy God that we cannot encounter and then we have his visible creation. And this passage is saying that those invisible things are revealed in God's visible creation. Saying that essentially everything in all creation is personal. That everything is a work of art by God. And that in this this vast I guess, masterpiece that God has made. His signature is written all over it. And you cannot look at anything and not see God's handiwork and the personal character of God behind it. Now let's, let's fresh flesh that out a little bit. So how does that work? It says all creation and so let's start with, with just nature. How does nature reveal the character of our God? Alright, so we think of we think of standing before the stars. We see that the display of the, the Milky Way across the universe, our one universe among billions. This is God's proclamation to us that He is more grand and more powerful. And more amazing than we can even fathom that this is just what God does, He creates these things, and we 're mi- meant to, to stand and look up and feel like nothing before God that 's the point, point. and if you 're looking at the stars correctly that 's how you feel, or we think of, we think of the sun coming up the blinding sun the sun that we are all reminded with the eclipse, you cannot look at without being destroyed, without being blinded. This isn't God himself. This is a, a mere creation of God. And we can't look behind that and not, not see an even greater, more glorious God. We stand before the ocean and, and it just goes on and on and on. And we feel the majestic creation of our God. They were nothing before him. What is it in, in nature that makes you stand in awe of the Creator God? Sunsets, there we go. Sunsets, sunrises. You're amazing things to behold. And that's just one part of creation. That's nature. All right, then we have all of his creatures. All right, let's start with plant life. All right, Laura's going to appreciate this one. <laughs> it's a, there's like so many plants. It's ridiculous. And and they're, they're sculptures that God has created that grow and change and adapt to the world. And we see them blossom. We see them bloom. We see them lose their leaves. We see the, the animals themselves. We see the bugs. We see the... <laughs> the goofy animals that you only see at the zoo, like oh, copies, and all the things you you always forget about, like weird stripy guys, and we see the creativity of our God. What animal do you think of as as the creative masterpiece of God? We all have them. Mine would be like a panther or something. That's a good one. Um, Casey's would be an elephant, right? Yeah, there we go. Um, <laughs> we see we see the creativity of our God in his creatures and then we have the pinnacle of creation we have humanity and when we look at humankind we see that there's something special about us there's something different about us that we are made in the image of God we see our our works of art our music our engineering our music And we see that there is something unique and special about humankind. A beauty to humankind. And that you can't help but see that there is something special. That the image of God rests upon us. And then we are ourselves. We are creation ourselves. And so we can't exist without feeling the marks of God upon us. That in our conscience... We feel the knowledge of God. That we can't help but feel guilt and shame when we do even secret sins. We don't even know who we've hurt, but, but we still feel those things. Or we feel within ourselves the, the glory and goodness that there is right and wrong, that there are laws that should be maintained. It's the knowledge of God that we cannot escape. What is it about humanity that, that forces you to see the God behind? Creation, it's, it's shouting out that there is a God. And not just this kind of impersonal God, that there is a God who created all of this and there is a God who is in control and there is a God that that we can't help but worship and acknowledge. That is what creation does. And what does that mean for us? What does that mean for humanity? Verse 20, the second half. So they are without excuse. So they are without excuse. We have to see that unbelievers... They can never come to the throne room of God and, and accuse him saying, well, God, I would have believed in you. I would have been faithful if you'd just shown yourself to me. Or the ball was in your court, God. I was waiting. I was waiting for you to call me. You, you withdrew. You, you didn't come to me. That excuse is not going to work. He's going to say, no, you, you knew from the very beginning. You are my creation. You felt the knowledge of me. You saw creation. You saw me. Now that is important because it defends that the justice of our God, that before revealing God's wrath, he revealed himself to every person. And we're accountable for that knowledge. And there's a second kind of implication there. For those of you who are believers, interact with non-believers, you are interacting with people who know God. There is no true non-believer that everyone actually does know. They're suppressing that knowledge. They're pretending not to know. They're denying that knowledge, but it's there. The analogy that's often used is a if the knowledge of God were like a beach ball. All right, so what the non-believer is doing is jumping in the pool and and trying to hold down the beach ball. They're suppressing that knowledge. They're hiding it. You can't see it. But the problem is that you can't live in God's world and not acknowledge God. You just have to because it doesn't make any sense otherwise. And so every non-Christian is suppressing this knowledge And sooner or later, it comes popping up, explodes out of the water, and oh, there's some knowledge of God there. And you can see that in every every unbeliever. You see, you see the atheist who believes that basically the principle of life is uh, be eat or eat or be eaten. It's natural selection. That you kill or be killed. And that that's actually how everything became so complex and so beautiful is by destruction. That's kind of their their worldview. That's their religion that says that. And then this same person turns around and says, but humans humans have rights. And we should defend human dignity. And we should fight oppression. And we we should end racism. That's that's the the beach ball coming popping up. And you're like, well, where did that come from? You don't believe in any of that stuff. You don't, you believe in in oppression as the name of the game. That if you can take it, you should take it. And that's how the world was born. And when we interact with non, non-believers, we need to, to interact with them and, and point out those things and challenge those things and say, actually, that's That's the knowledge of God. That's you should believe that. You should fight oppression. You should fight racism, but you can't defend it. You believe in the mankind created in the image of God, whether you like it or not. And that's where you and non believers have a lot in common, the non believer and the believer. You share common knowledge. And if you can find those bridges then you can actually help them see that Christianity is is the foundation for their beliefs whether they know it or not. That without this creator God they would lose some of the things that they love the most. They have no basis for the laws that they uphold. They have no basis for hating certain things. That are part of creation. Now, for those of you who who don't know God, who aren't sure would put yourself in the category of the unbeliever, what are those things that you can't explain? That you can't defend, but you you believe with all your heart and soul that you know certain things are right, you know certain things are wrong. That's the knowledge of God. It is the knowledge of God that you are suppressing and that you're refusing to acknowledge. Alright, so there's a universal knowledge of God. God has ensured that that is the case. But now, what do people use or do with that universal knowledge of him? They universally suppress it. And they universally deny it. They universally kind of stuff it down so they don't have to deal with it. Look at verse twenty-one. For Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. All right. So believing something is actually a lot more complicated than we think it is. We think that, oh, you just, you just believe the facts. But it's not that easy, actually. Because there's a problem with believing God. If you believe God, there's implications. Now, some are really positive implications. The positive things are you'll, you'll have a relationship with him. You'll be interacting with the actual world. That if this is created by God, then that is the right kind of lens by which we should view everything. But there's a problem. If this real, this is creator God is real, then you have duties and responsibilities to him. You owe him honor. That if, if he is all powerful and all wise and all knowing, he knows what you should be doing. And he actually gets to tell you what you should be doing. And you don't get to be independent. You are obligated to obey and to submit and to worship him even. There's a second obligation. You are obligated to be thankful if this God is real. Because that means he's given you everything you have. Every breath, every talent, every skill. It means you're not allowed to boast anymore. It means you're not allowed to be whiny about things anymore. You don't get to complain because honestly you only have life because of him. And your whole life becomes indebted to this creator God. This God over all things. And we start to see that belief in this God is a little bit complicated. Because maybe we don't want to honor him. And maybe we aren't thankful. And we don't want to have to be. All knowledge is pretty complicated. It comes with implications. So, example of this. All right, let's say that someone's telling a telling a story about you. Now, you don't remember the story, but in one one version you're a horrible person. You did something atrocious, you're super embarrassed. How likely are you to accept and believe that story? No, you start denying everything. I, I, don't, I don't remember that. That couldn't have happened. My favorite, uh, you must have dreamed that. That's my favorite. My mom likes using that one. No, you can't bring up anything. <laughs> I'm just dreaming. All right, but what if the story is about uh, equally, you forgot about this story, but you are, you are gracious and you are kind and you are just so good and wonderful. You're willing to accept that story. Because you like the implications of it. It means you're a nice person and you do nice things and you don't even realize it. You don't even remember. You don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The implications of knowing that you're a mean, horrible person are too difficult for us, so we we don't want to believe that story. That's how the knowledge of God works. We're biased. And we don't want to believe in a God if that means that we are indebted to him. And the world is not being strictly factual. They're believing with their hearts. And they're believing with their desires. They're believing with their emotions. It's not just intellectual. And when we know that knowledge is like that, it changes how we approach people and it changes how we think about believing. So take the, the college student. College student, he was, he was raised in the church, believed his whole life, and then three months into freshman year, he doesn't believe in God anymore. And we wonder, well, what happened? Did we not equip him for, with the truth? Did we not give him enough apologetics? Well, maybe, for the first time in his life, he can party whenever he wants to, sleep around without consequences and suddenly he doesn't want to believe in God anymore because he wants other things. That's the reality. We treat people like they're just information boxes but no. They believe according to their desires and according to the things that they want. And the world rejects God that they know without a doubt because they don't want to worship. Now, this is talking about unrighteousness. There is no greater unrighteousness than that. To know the God that deserves all of our worship and to not want to know him and to therefore deny him. And look at this verse says, it says, they became futile in their thinking. To futile, it, it's thinking without any effect. It doesn't get them anywhere. That they're actually kind of hijacking their minds. They're hijacking their brains to serve their hearts. All right, yeah, I. We all do this. Every single one of you does this. All right, if you want to do something, you can find ten reasons to do it. And if you don't want to do that same thing you could find 10 even better reasons not to do it. And I, I find myself asking this question, like, like what, do I, what do I want to think about this? Let's say there's someone who, who I'm not sure if they insulted me or not. If they're my friend, I, I want them not to have insulted me. So I think of a way that that's possible. Is there someone I don't like? Then I can think of a dozen ways that they possibly slighted me and then I can judge them and be mean to them and I can go on my way. What do you want to believe versus what is actually true? Ask yourself that question. When you're fighting with your spouse, what do you want to believe versus what is actually true? We all do this. We all become futile in our thinking. Our hearts dictate what our our minds actually think. And then the result. Their foolish hearts were darkened. So there's this interplay here. That your hearts are sinful so they tell your mind what to think. And then your mind goes back to your heart and reinforces it and it's just spiraling down. That your mind and your heart are like corrupting each other and they kind of spiral down to this pit of darkness. That's what's happening in the the mind and heart of the unbeliever. Until verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things that the result is, is idolatry. That there is this glorious God out there who longs to have a relationship with them and they start worshipping uh, the trees. They start worshipping art. They start worshipping the, the golden calf. All of these goofy things. And they totally switch the order. The creation is supposed to be pointing them to the creator God. Instead, they use their creation to worship idolatry and to reject the true God and they make an exchange this glorious God to worship and they trade it for these these dead piddly little things and that's that's the unbeliever life is to make that trade and to To be under the wrath of God as a result—that is the heart of unrighteousness—is to exchange the glory of God for these things that are dead. All right. So that's the unbeliever. All right. What do we do with this as believers? First of all, God isn't unjust. He's not unjust. He's not cruel. this is real unrighteousness. This is right at the core of it. And second, we need to we need to know what we're up against when we're talking to unbelievers. We're not up against facts. We're up against hearts that are sinful. And we are we're up against deep-seated spiritual blindness. And and willful blindness. And if we think we're going to jump in there with, with easy answers, we aren't. And yet, yet there is the knowledge of God in there. And it, it pops up and, and those are our opportunities to talk to them about the things that they, they know in spite of themselves. Alright. But, what else do we do with this? As believers. We should see ourselves in this as much as we want to pretend that this is just the unbeliever out there this is the heart of every single one of us and every single one of us has made that exchange the exchange of the glorious God for idols for these piddly things that we long to worship and we think are better than God and we don't honor God or thank him as we should Oftentimes, we don't want to honor or thank him we don't we don't fight to believe the things that we that we know and we resolve to to be fools. We we let our our hearts hijack our minds and corrupt our thoughts. We do all of these things. And we're actually They said that that they are without excuse. We are without even more excuse. That we do those things knowing our God, knowing Him by name, knowing every single act He has ever done is recorded in Scripture. We know our God and we still do these things. And that's where, as much as we want to point at the unbeliever and see the death that is in their heart, we have to point it back to ourselves that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness all ungodliness not just the unbeliever but the believers too and that's where that's where thankfully there's a certain irony here that the wrath of God is revealed and actually this is talking about this is part of the gospel that when God reveals his wrath it's so that we might know where we stand We might know how unrighteous we are and we might forget any more trying. We might forget about any more attempts to earn our own righteousness. Then no, this is our hearts. This is the reality of where we stand. And then God God does the second revelation of his wrath. He reveals his wrath on the cross. The God himself, in all glory, he comes as an image. He exchanges himself, his glory, for the, the weakness and poverty of the image. And he comes down and lives the perfect life. He lives every second acknowledging God and remembering God and honoring God and thanking God. Even on the cross, Jesus Christ was thanking his father the joy that was before him and then God poured out and revealed his wrath in the cross that he destroyed the perfect one he destroyed the only one who is godly the only one who is righteous and by faith in Christ we put our unrighteousness and our ungodliness in Christ on the cross and God poured out his wrath upon Jesus Christ. Last week we talked about how Jesus Christ earned our righteousness and gave it to us. He also took our unrighteousness and was destroyed for it. You can't have one without the other. That those two things together make up the gospel. That we exchanged glory for an image. And Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness to make us perfect and to die in our place. And now, we know God in a whole different sense now. That yes, everyone knows God as, as the sovereign one, as the creator. But we know God as the, the merciful one and the gracious God of salvation. And that's the God we want people to see. That they know the one, but they don't know the mercy and grace of God in Christ. That is not revealed everywhere. That is revealed in the gospel. And that is revealed when we as God's people go to them and reveal that God to them. And we go with great honor and thankfulness to God because of what he has done for us. So what do we do with this? Be thankful. Honor God. Um, be real with the non-Christian. Pat answers are not the solution. We need to talk about people's hearts, and our hearts, and what Christ has actually done for us. And and we need to rejoice. This is the good news. That any ounce of unrighteousness has been paid for. There is no more wrath to be revealed for you if you are in Christ. You're done. And when Christ comes back bearing that sword with the sword of judgment he's going to welcome us with, with open arms. It has been fully revealed for us. There is only glory to be revealed now. Let's pray. Father we praise you we praise you as the creator we praise you as the the one who deserves all honor and thanks and Father we we praise you as the one who pours out wrath upon your son that we might be spared from it thank you Father thank you for Jesus Christ thank you for exchanging our unrighteousness for your righteousness bearing our sins on the cross. And Father, thank you for your resurrection. That as Christ rose from the dead, he defeated those things. And he stands victorious. Victorious over our sin. Victorious over wrath. And Father, we ask that you might be glorified in your mercy and in your grace. Would you send us that we might glorify your name through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name.